Well, if you're joining with us, if you're visiting with us today, I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm Paul Joyner, uh, one of the pastors um, here at Zion. We are preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you are new to Christianity, maybe don't have a Bible, just checking Jesus and his church out. We're, again, we're thankful that you're here. If you want to find out a little bit more about our church, you can fill out one of the the cards in the pew rack and drop that in the offering plate, which is in the back or in the front up here. We, uh, <clears throat> as we're working our way through First um, Corinthians, let me just make a few before I read the sermon text. Just a few housekeeping notes. One, just a reminder that we have Keaton Paul's ordination tonight um, at five o'clock back here. This is a great time of celebration of what God has done in giving us the good gift of Keaton and then moving us into the moving him into the office of teaching elder. And so it's something that we do together as a body, and so we want to encourage everyone to be here. We'll have a light reception afterwards. Um, second, um, I am recovering from COVID, um, and so um, I'm technically out of quarantine, don't worry, um, but I am supposed to keep my distance for another couple of days, so it, um if I'm, I'm not being coy, I'm being careful. If I you know, don't hug you or you see me skip out also, that's a caveat. If I say something that doesn't make any sense um, to you, it's COVID brain. <clears throat> I wish I could. Uh, that may be just be the disclaimer on, on all of my sermons for the rest of my life. It's like the asterisk. He had COVID <clears throat> twice. Um, Lastly, we're going to close our portion of uh, 1 Corinthians today uh, with the end of 14, because tomorrow I start a sabbatical for the next few months, Um, and and the end of 14 is actually a very clean stopping point in 1 Corinthians. We will pick up and do chapter 15 in an in-depth study at the first of the year. Um, Over my sabbatical, we're going to be looking at selections. We're going to call a sermon series, Life with Jesus, Selections from the Gospels. Um, So the various selections from the Gospels, then we'll move into Advent. And then the first of the year, we'll pick back up and do a a very intense study on 1 Corinthians 15, which is perhaps one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament. Maybe paralleling only Romans chapter 8 for its importance. And so we're going to pick that up and spend at least the month of January and the first of the year focused on that. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting with verse 20, reading through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Brothers, and here he means brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of Of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues. And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say That you are out of your minds, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really 
among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But there, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word, the wisdom of man will fail us at all times, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? God, as we come to your word preached, we want to hear from Jesus. We want your spirit to bring the intensity of his power and heat and light to bear on Jesus, illumine your word that we might delight in your ways and sink our hearts into his work. We're perilous, wandering, full of despair and doubts, full of Selfish ambition and pride. And so what we need is to be filled again with your grace and your love. Draw us. Convict us. And change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Well, one of the great challenges of parenting, um, amongst all the challenges of parenting, is helping your children to see that there is a world outside of themselves. Children, how many times have you heard your parents say as you barged into the room or stopped a conversation that the adults were having, you're interrupting. Just when you walked into the conversation, you didn't even realize that that's what you're doing and they had to remind you. And don't worry, that's, that's normal for a child. It's normal for a child that you have something on your mind, your parents are there you love them, they know you love, you know they love you, and so you want to share with them 
what's on your heart and your mind. That's a good thing, but that is also part of what it means to grow up into adulthood. You begin to notice other people outside of yourself. You stop interrupting. You notice that there's a world that exists outside of yourself, and then you begin to take responsibility for that world too. That is part of the definition of moving into adulthood. One of the great changes that I see in young men get married is that they begin to take responsibility for their lives because they've taken the responsibility of the life of another. They've begun to build a home. They are working not just for their own pleasure, but for those who are under their care. They've moved to take responsibility. That's part of what it means to grow from a child into an adult, a sign of clear maturity, is that a child is aware of the needs of others. You see, when a child interrupts, an adult listens. A child says, I want a parent. An adult says, what do you need? That's a clear sign of maturity. And that is what Paul has in mind in verse 20. It's what he means when he says, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. It seems that what had happened in the church of Corinth in this section starting with chapter 12, roll the way through chat, the end of chapter 14 is he's addressing the people of God as they gather for worship. Actually, he started this back in 11 when talking about the Lord's Supper. It seemed that there was a lot of chaos and ambition and, and pushing one's agenda forward. It seems that the chaos was the norm for the Corinthian church because each was doing what they wanted. And he's saying, that's childish. That's not the way of God and his, his kingdom. Because the key to understanding what, in fact, the whole of what he's saying in this portion in chapter 14 is that the chaos as a result of self-assertion that the people of God redeemed by the grace of the one who didn't put his needs first but put the needs of his people first were now using corporate worship to assert themselves. It's probably what Paul has in mind at the end of verse 33 when he says, women shall be silent in all the churches. Now, he, he doesn't mean that women should not have anything to say because back in chapter 11, he had given instructions for women prophesying and praying in the context of the church gathered for worship on the Lord's day. He doesn't mean that, that when the church gathers, women are to be silent. Rather, it seems that, he, that some of the women tying 11 and 14 together, some of the women were using the gathering of worship to express their new freedom in Christ by asserting themselves in ambitious ways, interrupting, and it was creating chaos. And so in verse 26, again, the self-assertion, each one has a hymn when you gather together. Each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. Each a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Each had something to express that was on their hearts. Each had something to say. They felt like there was something to be said. An opinion that they had. An experience that they had experienced. Something that had become valuable and important to them. An idea that needed to be expressed. And Paul says... 
Let's practice some restraint when the church gathers together. His instruction to them isn't that, is that the, the, the place to express yourself when you want to express yourself isn't when the people of God are gathered together. This is a time, in fact, this is the movement of the kingdom of God, is that this is a place and God's kingdom is a place that's not about you, but is for the building up of others. That's such a corrective to so much of the posture of the church today, isn't it? That is so centered on the self expressing itself. That's just the waters that we, that we swim in. That the, the, real, the real authentic person is the one without any restraint placed on them by others who express themselves and even push their own opinions at times. I believe this so strongly that I must assert it, but but God's kingdom is a place of replacements. The thief should no longer steal, but give generously. This is the way of the kingdom of God. God is replacing old patterns of behavior with new patterns of behavior. And in the kingdom of God, especially as the church gathers together, as the clearest expression that God the king is reigning and redeeming in the world, the replacement should no longer be, I think, it should be what is good for others. No longer be what edifies me, but what do others need? And so the love of God, Paul is saying, is not measured by the intensity of my emotional experience, but by the intensity of my willingness to put the needs of others first. And that needs to be most clearly on display when the church gathers together for worship. The question of, is this good, is not primarily answered by how does it affect me. Is this good? Is it from the Spirit of God? Is it in line with His Word? Then ends with the question, is this good for the building up of others? Paul is commanding an amazing amount of self-restraint in verse 26 and following. Look with me, if you will. What then, brothers... Again, he means brothers and sisters. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That's the ambition. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, and each in turn. And then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. But you see what he's doing is he's putting the brakes on self-expression. Not that self-expression is wrong. When the Spirit of God moves amongst the people of God, it is natural and right for us to express ourselves. When, when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem, David was dancing like a fool in celebration. It's good for us to raise our hands, as Paul says, in worship. Self-expression is good. But he's saying that there's another layer on it that needs to be considered, and that's an amazing amount of restraint as well. As I mentioned last week, that 
what Paul has in mind when he's talking of tongues is not sort of the ecstatic utterances that are mindless and um, <clears throat> that we often see in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. He has in mind here the speaking of other languages, known languages, for the sake of communicating the truths of the gospel, as we see in Acts chapter 2. Known languages. Someone had not learned to communicate that particular language, but all of a sudden, spontaneously was speaking gospel truths in a language that they had never learned, but that someone in the hearing could understand. And Paul says, okay, that is a pretty powerful manifestation that the Spirit of God is in your midst when that happens now. Filter that experience, as powerful as it is, through the cross of Jesus Christ and practice some redemptive restraint. Let there be only two or at most three speak when that happens. Restrain yourselves, one or two. Now, when that happens, let it be done in turn. One speak and then the other speaks. Then hit the brakes again. And then when that happens, let's all stop And have someone interpret so we can understand what God the Spirit is communicating about Jesus. And therefore, it's not a personal experience. Together, we're all built up. And if you can't find someone to interpret, then hit the brakes again. And just keep silent. Likewise, for the prophets, the Spirit has moved in incredibly powerful ways. And given you an insight from God that's burning and must be delivered And when that happens, don't all start speaking at once. Let one speak and then another at most two or three and then hit the brakes. And let someone weigh that out against what's clear from the scriptures. And when that's happening, let the first be silent. And I see this in a, in a different ways today. Again, I said last week, I do believe we've moved past the times of tongues and prophecy. It was a, for a particular time in the movement of the history of redemption. That time with the close of the apostles has ceased. We don't need it anymore. We have the full sufficiency of God's completed word before us. But I do see the sort of moving as well in the church today, a church as sees itself as a means of that a lot of us come in thinking, and as I think this is just the natural flow of things, I need to find a church that fits my needs, that helps me express myself. I need to find a church that is in line with my political or cultural values, that helps me express that to the world. I need to find a church where I like the music, where I like the preaching. You'll need to find another one, I'm sure, if that's the case. The flip side of that is what God has designed the church to be is a place not of personal self-expression, but a place of spiritual formation. And the two are at odds with themselves. If, If you're looking for a place to just express yourself, you'll never be in a place where God can actually confront and control and conform you to the image of Jesus. You've entered into a church of Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that he says. That in all these things, that, that, that whatever is happening internally needs to be expressed 
externally, and then it needs to be weighed out by the entire church. You've entered into the church of Jesus Christ to be graciously scrutinized so that you can be graciously formed. You may feel strongly that the Lord has given you particular insights and things that need to be valued. But if the gifts of tongues and prophecies in the first century church must be put under the lens of scrutiny, so should all of our lives. As amazing as these were, and they were amazing, which is why they are overusing them and misusing them. And if these amazing gifts need to have scrutiny put on them, then so does all the rest of the things that we believe and experience. It's a humble acknowledgement that when we come together, not only could I be wrong, I don't even trust my heart to handle the things of God. Keaton just went through an entire scrutinizing pattern to become a teaching elder, a pastor in our denomination. You see, it's not sufficient for him simply to say, I'm called to ministry. He submits himself to the scrutiny of the church to say, let's test that call. We will decide, we will examine as the instrument of God whether you, your internal experience matches what God has said in his word. And we will weigh that out theologically. We'll weigh out your biblical knowledge. We will weigh out your call. This runs so deeply in Paul that he actually uses it as a litmus test for one's true experience of Jesus and his spirit. That if, he says in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, and what he means by this are the things that he is saying, if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. That there needs to be the sign of the Spirit is a humble submission to to the rest of the body. I'm going to put my ambitions, my selfish expressions, my desires in conformity to the needs of the greater whole as well. That's the move of the Spirit. It's such a basic posture of life in Jesus that Paul even says if someone doesn't recognize the needs of others, that that has to take priority. It doesn't recognize, it should be recognized in this. It's basic posture, Paul says. This is such a basic posture for life in the church that if he doesn't recognize it, he probably doesn't have the Spirit of God. They should recognize by the church and worship and be allowed. If they, on the other side, recognize it, give them a chance to use their gifts. If they're doing it for the building up of the whole. This shouldn't surprise us that there's a level of redemptive restraint when the Spirit moves. Because we are in Christ Jesus and given the Spirit by Him who restrained Himself when He took on our flesh Being fully God, there were times when he said, I won't exercise all that that means so that I might bear your sins. When Pilate was threatening him, Jesus said, don't you understand? I've got legions of armies of angels that I could call and they would deliver me in an instant. But I'm going to restrain that so that you might falsely accuse me, hang me on the cross and kill me for the sake of my people whom I love. God's not quick to anger, but withholds even his own 
wrath, not expressing it. And if he were, we would all be without hope. But he practices redemptive restraint, even withholding his own self-expression of his anger so that we might come to faith and repentance in Jesus. And then it will be expressed in due time on his son for our sins. Redemptive restraint is the way of the cross. That we might use only what we experience and what the Spirit is stirring for the sake of others. Now, there's also hidden in here another assumption. And that is, that is that when God the Spirit is moving, it is with tremendous power. And that he is moving with that kind of tremendous power when the people of God gather together for worship. You see this in verse 26. It's kind of a throw-off line. When you come together, when you come together, what then, brothers, when you come together? He actually uses it a few times in this entire paragraph. And when Paul reaches into his vocabulary bag of words and he pulls out a pretty intense verb here. It's a verb that implies strongly that something with great power is happening. It's the same verb that when we use when we pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Your kingdom come. We aren't praying for the kingdom to come and just kind of come near. We're, coming, we're praying in that instance. God, would you come with power to transform broken things into new things. Cursed things into blessed things. It's not like praying for your dog to come near. Or come together to watch a football game. That kind of coming together is casual. This kind of coming together is for God to be present with power and to do redemptive works. And when he is present in that way, it is when the people of God gather together for worship. Because it's in this context that the Corinthian church is going to experience the gifts of tongues and prophecy. They're not going to experience it at home, sitting in their chair or their prayer closet or driving down the road or watching it on the live stream. They are going to Experience when they are gathered together, this movement of the Spirit. Because the gifts of the Spirit always are to be experienced communally. When the church gathers together, that's the context when the Spirit does His greatest work. Because God is there. One of the things the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews chapter 12 is he highlights, he hyperlinks our experience when we gather together back to what Israel experienced when they saw the glory of the Lord descending on Mount Sinai. And he says, you actually have something better than that. You're, you're escorted into the heavenly places and around us right now is what is going on is 
the entirety of the angels and the saints who have gone before, who are enrolled in heaven by the firstborn Jesus Christ, are all gathered together. You may not see it, but God does, and it's his reality. Better than the glory cloud descending when Moses stood outside of the tabernacle, the church has become the temple of the living God. And when we gather together, the Spirit of God is so powerfully at work that we should expect tremendous things to happen when we gather. There should be an intense expectation. Now sometimes, look, we're just dragging ourselves in here on a Sunday morning. But we're dragging ourselves in here because we expect God to do something. But he has a very, Paul has a very particular idea in mind as to what that tremendous experience is. Because let's remember that the point of God's intense presence by his spirit is to make Jesus known. And so he calls tongues and prophecy signs. Signs that point away from themselves to Jesus. Thus, verse 22, tongues are a sign for believers. We'll see here that this is actually a negative sign, a sign of judgment. Likewise, prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. And as signs, the signs of God always point to the work of God, not to themselves. And so this is what he does in verse 21. He actually quotes Isaiah 28. And he says this, In the law it is written by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. In Isaiah 28, what's going on is Isaiah is delivering a judgment oracle to Israel that the Assyrian Empire is going to come in and invade Israel because they had failed to listen to the redemptive restraint of God warning them for hundreds of years that this will come. Now Paul's pulling that out and says, this is is a, a litmus test. He says, in Isaiah 28, what happened was God warned, God spoke, the people didn't listen. So they came under his judgment. And you say, this is, this, is, this is what's going on when tongues are being delivered. God is speaking gospel truths to his church. And it's a litmus test. Will people listen even when... God speaks in clarity instead of listening. Ancient Israel just hardened their hearts. And that's what he's saying. Look, songs are a sign to unbelievers in your midst. Because what God is doing is he's making his gospel known. He's speaking in foreign languages to people so that they can clearly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they respond by saying, these people are out of their minds. And then it's clear that they're under God's judgment and have been not been made alive by the Spirit of God. Because if they had been made alive by the Spirit of God, they would have heard the gospel. And not said, these people are out of their minds, but that is the best news I could have heard. That's good news. I was just talking last week to 
someone who God had connected mutual friends with who had just come to faith in Jesus, a person that many of us have been praying for for over a decade. This guy was talking to him about the church and the essential nature of the church to the Christian life. And, and this new Christian had said, he shrugged it off. He said, I, I, I tried that many times. That's what you often hear when someone comes to faith in Christ in the South. I, I tried the church. I didn't find it all that helpful or exciting. And his response back to him was, of course you found it boring. You are dead in your sins. And I thought, I wish I could have that kind of boldness. That's the kind of courage and boldness we all need, and it's good and it's refreshing. But that's what Paul is saying when you hear the gospel spoken in your tongue from someone you know doesn't speak your tongue. Your response is, if you people are out of your minds, instead of I'm out of my mind, I've been out of my mind, and I need that Jesus to sign it's a sign that you are dead in your sins under God's wrath because you've hardened your heart to him. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's the most ridiculous message that anybody could ever hear. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The natural person, he goes on, he says, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. In that act, God's putting the world, you understand, in that act, God's putting the world in order. Because he's not a God of disorder and chaos, but a God of peace and everything that he does when his people gather together should be done decently and in order. And that's what God's doing in the world. He's putting things in order. And in this move, as he displays his gospel, his, because God's word never returns to him void. It always accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. God is always making things happen when his word goes out. And sometimes, as an act of judgment, his word is going out and hardening the hearts of unbelievers. Sometimes it's going out and making us alive to God in Christ. But it is never returning to him void. Either, either you'll experience heart-shattering power by the gospel or heart-hardening power by the gospel. Now, if you're convicted as you hear that, take that to heart. God is not hardening you, but making you come alive to his spirit, which takes us back into the gift of prophecy. In verse 25, you are not without hope, never without hope. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, by the way, notice, it's the assumption that there will always be in the church that God gathers together those who are not yet in Christ. That they're going to find it weird. That's okay. The kingdom of God is weird in refreshing ways. Jesus is weird in refreshing ways. It's okay if we're weird. 
we should expect and want those who don't know Jesus to be in worship because this is where the power of God's like a freight train coming through. He's gonna do his work. So if all prophesy, verse 25, and an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That is true spirituality. The true life of the Spirit is when He convicts us of sin, not in great displays of spectacular. The world, as I said last week, anybody can produce emotionally heightened displays with the right soundtrack, feeding the crowd with noise, light shows, smoke. Spectacular things can happen, can be produced, but what cannot be produced is a dead person being convicted of their sin because God the Spirit has shown light on them. And when that happens, Jesus becomes the greatest answer we could ever have. When the Spirit convicts us so deeply that we say, I am without hope except in Jesus, and in Jesus, I have all that I need because God has given him to me. God has done what my hands could never do. The Spirit moves to make the secrets of the heart disclosed. You know, in a sense, experience was probably going on, at least in part, is something similar to John chapter 2 when Jesus sees Nathanael and says, Ah, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. And Nathanael's like, How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you when you're under the fig tree a long way off. Nothing can be hidden from my sight. The real before God, the real you is always made known. The real you always exists before God. Part of the experience of the Corinthian church was probably an experience of prophecy was so deep and profound that someone would have come and said, I know you you are embezzling from your employer. You've, You've gotten away with it. No one sees it, but God has seen it. And you're guilty before him. You've cleared your search history. But that's not been cleared off the books of the God who sees all things. It's written in an indelible ink in his book of judgments. And there will be a day when it must be dealt with. And that was going on publicly. It's pretty frightening to think. It was probably going on publicly. But the result was repentance that brought life and joy. That is the the great hope of the gospel, isn't it? That the hope of the gospel is that God who sees all things and nothing has been hidden from his sight has provided his son as a sacrifice to atone for my sin that he has seen. He has not turned his face 
away from me, but turned it towards me and away from his son so that his face now shines on me if I'm in Christ. So whatever is known about me to me or to others doesn't have to undo me because God, the judge of all the earth, has declared me righteous in Christ. And so when he's called to account, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is why the church should never be a place of hypocrisy. It is something that we will always fiddle with and struggle with. But it always is always contrary. It is always contrary to the heart of the gospel. It doesn't have to be a place where we hide because we're hidden in Christ. It doesn't have to be a place where we hide from God because he has the one who's hidden us in Christ. And so when his spirit brings the intense light on our sin, it is to lead us into joyful celebration that that sin has been done once and for all, done for in Christ. So if you're experiencing conviction of sin today, then delight the spirit knows you and loves you enough to make the secrets of our hearts known even to our eyes not to destroy but to revive to revitalize and to refresh and so we as we come to this table it serves as a sign to us as well from the Spirit, that Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would take these ordinary elements and feed us again on your promises. They are a firm and steady anchor. Would your Spirit move afresh and anew even today? that Jesus might be known more deeply and that we might know more of his delight for us. And so where you have wounded us, as we come to this table, would you now apply the balm of the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.